Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley. Before we get stuck into uh, what's coming up on today's episode, let's take a look at what we've learned this week. Shocked I was. My flabber was ghastly. It turns out I was so busy with my main job that I hadn't noticed, but apparently I've been an MP on the side for years. Yeah! But to fight, I will not give in to the media mob. The good, honest, hard-working people of wherever it is I'm an MP for will decide whether or not I should carry on doing whatever it is I've been doing from wherever it is I've been doing it. The thing is, there are upsides to MPs having second jobs, or as Cabinet Minister Anne-Marie Trevelyan put it, they bring uh, a richness. And they don't have more richness than Sir Geoffrey Cox. What first drew you to the British Virgin Islands, Geoffrey? The full midday beam. Well, yes, the weather is nice. Phileas Cox has been around the world in 80 paydays, but remains unrepentant about being a top-class barrister. Owen Patterson must be wishing he could afford him. Still, it prompted us to play a brand new game called... Cox or Commons! But it turns out that's just two words describing a group of MPs. Talking of word games that get slightly out of hand, this was ITV's lingo. Boner. B-O-N-E-R. Boner. B-O-N-E-R. Yes, it's a word. And by the way, the definition of boner is a mistake or blunder. Which means it's totally fine to say that in British politics we do have a lot of boners. In completely unrelated news, three MPs were criticised for getting drunk on a flight to meet troops in Gibraltar. Because if there's one thing we've learned about the army recently, there are sensitive souls unfamiliar with the idea of drinking too much and behaving appallingly. Elsewhere, we each closer to a deal which might save the planet, although hopes of cutting methane emissions were dashed by Joe Biden giving Camilla a toot of his favourite national anthem. The United States. And in the middle of it all, Boris Johnson declared... The UK is not remotely a uh, corrupt uh, country. Without adding, but we're working on it, all part of global Britain. Sure, they are the minority, but the thing about bad eggs is they don't half stink. The only good thing is that most Tory MPs are now wearing masks in the Commons, although mainly to cover their faces in case anyone recognises them.
You see, we learn so much. We learn so much. Right, coming up on today's episode, on a similar theme, it has to be said. Sleaze. When was the sleaziest time in British politics? Was it joint cash for questions in the 1990s? Was it MPs' expenses in the noughties? Or is it what's going on right now in British politics? Which is the worst, the 90s, the noughties or now? We've assembled a panel of veteran sleaze busters. Uh, and we'll do that uh, coming up on the podcast. First, though, we kick off, as ever, with our columnist panel. And today, because it's Friday, it must be Melody Reed and James Forsyth. Let's talk about... I, sp- I, I, I sort of feel like... Uh, we'll, um, is there's... Is this steam coming out? Are we running out of steam in the in the in the sleaze scandal, uh, if you like, uh, James? You're a good uh, a good barometer of these. You've seen how these there's always this rule if it's on the front pages for seven days or more that it starts really harming the government. The polls have narrowed a bit. Is there anywhere else for it to go, uh, it, or, or is this all over now? Will we still be talking about it next week? I think there is a similarity with the expenses scandal in that I think there are arrangements that are entirely um, within the rules, but most of the public would think, how on earth is that allowed? And I think that one of those at the moment is that if you um, take money from some interest, as long as you declare that interest, you can speak in debates or ask parliamentary questions that touch on that interest. And I think that that is the thing that the public are going to find very, very strange. That as long as you say, you know, I draw attention to my my entry in the Register of Members' interests, you can then ask a question essentially in the to the benefit of the the people that you are working for. And I think that is, I mean, the public are going to find that to be very, very odd. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? And, and, and you're right. So even the the, the story, which is uh, was on the front of the Times today, MPs fill pockets using rent expenses loophole. The yeah. point is that's the rules that yeah, uh, to and try and stop and MPs claiming for mortgages and essentially then saying, you know, they were told they then had to rent. So yeah. uh, the complaint is that some MPs owe, already own a flat, say in London, but they can't claim any money for that so they're maybe renting that one other one out and then they're they're claiming to rent a different flat which is all entirely within the rules but it just it it doesn't necessarily always pass the smell test yeah and i mean i think the issue is that you know that 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 you know when the when the public mood turns as one in people you know transparency is no defense you can come out and you know and it is worth remembering that you know david cameron in, in 2009 forced uh, and gordon brown did the same for labor MPs. they forced them to repay lots of expenses money which had been approved so they, they weren't forced to repay money that they shouldn't have claimed they were forced to repay money which you know on a technical level they had their, their expenses have been perfectly fine but public anchor was such that they thought the only way they could move on was to say okay we'll pay that money back and i think this is and i think this is the danger for the danger is that you know it, the, 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 you, how do you move on? How do you basically say, look, look, we've sorted this out? And I think at the moment, the government are hoping that this thing will blow itself out. You know, let the House of Commons um, Standards Committee look at this, you know, long grass it all. But I think if it goes on much longer, I think the pressure for them to do something to act will grow. I think one of the things that is reducing the pressure on them, though, is that, you know, Keir Starmer isn't really coming forward with, with any suggestions. If you think back to, you know, 2009, you know, David Cameron kept getting ahead of Gordon Brown. He kept, David Cameron kept saying, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and Gordon Brown was then forced to play catch-up. Starmer isn't really putting Boris Johnson under that kind of pressure. 
Uh, Melanie, as our sort of barometer of uh, the view as far, almost as far away from the Westminster bubble as you can possibly get, um, how is all this playing out for you? I see it that uh, it, it's absolutely right that it, it will it will drop down, it calm down a bit now. But I think that the longer term is that the Tory party is trying to attract a different type of voter. I mean, the whole the whole red wall, the red wallers versus the red quarters, as James puts in his column today <laughs> so nicely. Um, that, you know, that those people that are voting for MPs, uh, MPs for whom for whom eighty two thousand salary is is a lot of money for whom those in the south and it's just a starting salary again that's you know james james james's lovely turn of phrase so there's this you know people who do not have a lot of money they really value it and these are the new these if you like are the new the new the new constituency for the for the tory party that they need if they want to stay away from a hung parliament and i think Paying the money back, as as James says, it's 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 what you do if you're if you're not well off and you're in and you're in trouble and you're 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 looking a bit dodgy, then you pay it back. And uh, I think it would help. It would certainly help uh, allow them to move forward. The interesting thing about your your column, James, and uh, yeah, red red wall and red calls is very good. I can't believe it, it's, that, it's that sadly hasn't... not mine. Um, it, 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 the cabinet minister's rather good joke. Um, but yeah, they, oh, they... I def- oh, you're, you're very you're very generous to credit them in your column because I'd have just um, <clears throat> taken that. But the point is, it, this this actually isn't an either or equation, is it, for Boris Johnson? That in order for him to uh, continue to be the election uh, winning machine. He needs both because he needs both the red cords to stick with him, and obviously the the the, the electoral genius, if you like, was that he managed to add the red wallers. But he can't. He's right to be concerned about keeping the red wallers, but he does need to make sure he then doesn't lose the traditional conservative base, whether that's going, you know potentially Lib Dem or, or possibly Labour. You know, he, he, he does have to hold on to both of those, doesn't he? Yeah, and especially because um, parliamentary parties are much harder to, to manage than they were in the past. So, you know, back in the day, you, you might have thought a majority of 40 or 50 was enough for a government to get its business through. We've already seen that with a government majority of 80, the government have had to U-turn on a whole host of issues, you know, including planning, which was their biggest supply-side reform. Because they couldn't, they couldn't get it past their parliamentary party, and I think this is what is so tricky for him. He is, he is trying to keep together this this broad coalition, uh, and you know, and this is I think one of the challenges about about levelling up, which is you know how do you manage to deliver tangible progress so that you know in the red wall at the next election when it comes to because they well, look you know we voted Tory for the first time and things have got better uh, how do you manage to do that in the time frame given how deep-seated the issues that lots of those constituencies face are without just kind of throwing money at it and if you throw money at it then uh, then that means you know you're gonna have to put up taxes again or certainly won't be able to cut taxes for the next election and that risks alienating those traditional Tory heartlands in the south. And I suppose, the, actually, I was making that distinction between sort of red wall voters and red called uh, voters. But actually, the divide, one of the impacts of this uh, sleaze, I mean, sleaze just sort of covers everything. But this this massive, particularly the, the Owen Patterson row, has driven a huge wedge, hasn't it, between those two groups of MPs, the 29 intake 
2019 intake of Conservative MPs make up about a third of all Tory MPs. And they are livid about this, in part because they think they've been tarred with a brush which they didn't need to be tarred with. But also they just don't understand it. Why was the entire Conservative Party mobilised to protect like, essentially an old duffer like Owen Paterson? Yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of anger that they have basically had to cop a lot of abuse for trying to to, to do something that was that was so clearly going to cause problems. Uh, and I think one of the other things that they're cross about is you know that you know they feel that they kind of weren't asked before that they were marched up this hill. They marched up this hill, kind of you know, not of any you know. Someone said to me, you know, there are two hundred and fifty Tory MPs in that lobby, and only about twelve of them wanted to be there in a kind of active way. Uh, and and then they then they basically so they start getting kind of immediately start getting all these emails saying, "What on earth are you doing? Can't believe you did this." Only to find the government completely abandoning its position um, before lunch the next day. Um, uh, Melanie, um, I, I just wonder whether uh, we are um, wrong to, to start writing off Boris Johnson. Uh, anyone who's ever done that has always been, including <laughs> think, I've done this think, myself. I don't many think times. you ever can, but I, I, uh, I do think this plays. It does play badly, and he's going to have to do something. Um, he really is. With the, uh, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that of those red wall seats. How many of them have uh, outside interests? I mean, a quarter of MPs have outside interests. I bet you that those those red wall seats aren't amongst them. So, you know, it's... I, and actually, there's, got, I mean, the outside yeah. interest, there's such a difference between, you know, being paid to write an article for a newspaper and being paid by a international... Um, globally listed company to, yeah. to raise your right. concerns in the House of Commons. There's such a, you know, right. that, even that covers yeah. a broad thing. Uh, but, but also, I suppose it does also, you do, the point you make does also point to the fact that um, the MPs most likely to be seen as useful to companies are those who've been in the cabinet before and have contacts and knowledge. And so you sort of have to ask yourself, well, that's, you know, that again points to whether or not they should necessarily... Um, they shouldn't necessarily be doing that. Um, let's let's turn our attention to something else, just because I feel like we're slightly. Once again, we've we've all slightly agree with each other. Um, a, a total uh, change. This um, a uh, what's going on at Durham University? I think you put, picked this one out, Melanie. Yeah, I mean, I, this this is one. This had me out my eyes out on stalks, frankly. Um, Durham University, a Russell Group University. Um, the the students are being supported. The student union is being supported in um, uh, advising some of the female students, maybe male too, I'm not sure, to uh, offer sexual services, to become sex workers. You know, it's a jaw-dropper um, that, that, that actually the institution is, is supporting um, young women, mostly, I think, young women, to become men's playthings, to enter that horrible world of... of Commercial sex exploit, commercial sexual exploitation. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's it's a toast, a marmalade dropper. It really is. I, I, I genuinely, I genuinely, I was, I was like you. I was baffled. A marmalade dropper was a great, uh, a great phrase. Um, but I was genuinely. So the university insists the training was important to ensure students could be safe and make informed choices after noting an emerging trend of students selling sexual services. A part of me just thought. Why doesn't the university maybe offer some 
other advice on how there are other options if you want to, you know, you need to make some money or something. It's just, I mean, it's, it has been condemned by the university's minister, Michelle uh, Donnellan, uh, who said it was legitimising a dangerous industry and badly failing their duty to protect. Because, I mean, it is, crucially, it's, it's also illegal, James. That's the, 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 um, the other thing. I, I, I think, I think this is just so mad. Um, surely, if they are worried, if people are, are desperate enough that they are that they feel that they need to do this kind of work to make money, then then surely um, universities need to look into you know more financial support, ways to uh, uh, keep a limit on the costs of student accommodation. You know, I mean, the the idea that, the, that this is a kind of that oh yes, lots of people are doing this, so we, so we should teach them how to do it safely. It is completely insane. Um, and I think it also just suggests that the kind of moral compass has gone kind of slightly wonky there. Um, and I, I also think there's, there's something that, that, that I think what's most wrong about it, it as Melanie said, is, is the way in which it normalises it. It makes people think, oh, if I'm a bit short of cash, this, this, you know, this seems to be a, a way to do it. And, I, and they'll teach me how to do it safely. I mean, it's completely, um, completely and utterly ridiculous. It feeds. It's interesting because it feeds into this new trend in uh, approach to feminism. You know, that the old, uh, old sort of second wave feminists like me regard prostitution and and pornography and all these things as you know exploitation and oppression of women. But um, there is this new, much more sort of liberal feminism that says that hey, I'm a woman. I'm entitled to use my body how I want to use it. Um, you know, and it's it's there is this it's it's a great schism in the in 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 the sort of uh, feminist thinking, um, and it reflects that it goes it feeds into that. But um, I just think it's so damaging for young women. When I mean, there's loads of other there's loads of other casual work out there. You know, work in a shop or or, or get a part time job as a carer and. It's a lot better for you, I would have thought, than, than being exploited by a bloke. That's Melody Reed and James Forsyth there, giving us their take on the news. You can read James's column on a Friday and Melody's uh, column is in the Saturday magazine of The Times. And if you pick up a copy of Saturday's paper, you'll also get my column, which is nice. Uh, you just need to get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next... When was the worst sleaze? Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. 
We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, is Martin Bell right? I am inclined to think that the present state of affairs is worse than it was in the late 90s. Yes, Lees has been back in the news this week. Well, it started last week, of course, with Owen Patterson. It's widened out quite a lot into MPs' second jobs too. Martin Bell speaking to Times Red Box earlier this week saying he thought that what was going on now was worse than it was in the 1990s. So we're going to try and test that theory. Uh, Now, this week, of course, we've had Boris Johnson insisting slightly oddly on the world stage at the COP26 summit that Britain is not sleazy at all. I genuinely believe that uh, the UK is not remotely a uh, corrupt uh, country, nor do I believe that our institutions are are corrupt. And and I I think it's very, very important to, to say that. Uh, we have a very, very tough system of parliamentary uh, democracy and, and scrutiny, and not least by the, by the media. I just want to say the most important thing is those who break the rules must be investigated and should be punished. Uh, that was Boris Johnson speaking this week. But, of course, he's not the first Prime Minister who's had to address questions of sleaze thrown at MPs. Let's wind back... Well, more than a decade now. Here's Gordon Brown speaking in the House of Commons about the MPs' expenses scandal. I think we all have a duty now to make sure that the agreements that we come to and the independent reviews that are made are such that can restore the confidence in the system. With regard to the proposal from the members' uh, estimates, the members' allowance is committed last night, I think it is now very important, as they have suggested, uh, that the receipts and the payments uh, of members over the last four years... Uh, be scrutinised by a body that includes people who are completely independent of the political system. And by doing that for all MPs over a period of uh, four years, we can show the public we've taken every action that is necessary uh, to deal with any anomalies, to repair them, and at the same time to build the confidence that is necessary in the political system for the future. So that was Gordon Brown back in, what, 2009. Rewind more than a decade again. And here's John Major in 1997 on the Cash for Questions scandal. I have made it clear from the very outset that these matters must be properly examined. Why else would I have set up the inquiries? Many people criticised me for doing so and said, why have you done this? You could have brushed it aside after a week of parliamentary difficulty and it would all have gone away. I didn't do that. And why didn't I do that? because I happen to care about the reputation of Parliament in the short term and the long term, and if, if people have misbehaved, then it must be dealt with. But I am not going to bow to the witch-hunt mentality of saying that anybody who faces unsubstantiated charges must leave public life. That was John Major, way back in 1997, really banging the table there to make his point. So how does the news of the last week or so compare to what has come before? Uh, Let's speak to Christopher Hope, uh, the uh, chief political correspondent for The Telegraph. 
uh, who's been reporting on the events of the last week or so, but was also part of the reporting team uh, on the MP's expenses scanner too. Hi, Chris. Hi, Matt. Uh, nice to have you with us. We've also got Heather Brook, uh, the uh, journalist who campaigned for the oh. MP's expenses documents to be released uh, way, way back uh, in uh, the mid-noughties. Hi, Heather. Hi there. Hi. And going back even further, David Henke's the journalist who, who broke <laughs> some of the cash for question stories back in 1994. Hi, David. Hi. Uh, nice to uh, have you with us. <laughs> um, so, first of all, um, David, explain for people who... Uh, just so we can try to sort of put this into some context. What was, when we say the sleaze of the 1990s, what was the worst of it? Well, really the worst of it, I mean, the, the story involved um, <coughs> basically Mohammed El-Fayed um, being um, recommended by the time one of the biggest lobbying com uh, companies in Parliament, Ian Greer Associates, um, to pay um, members of Parliament to ask for questions, which is why it was called Cash for Questions. And altogether, the two MPs, Neil Hamilton, who actually today is still denied this. Um, and Tim Smith, who resigned um, as a, a minister straight afterwards, um, basically took about between them about £50,000. This led uh, really us to, on The Guardian to investigate the lobbying company. And basically, when the story broke, um, the lobbying company and Hamilton decided to sue The Guardian. As a result, The Guardian got hold of the books of Ian and Greer Associates. And when the case completely collapsed, it turned out that they weren't isolated cases. They were actually a number of other MPs who have been paid. And also Ian Greer altogether also provided um, his staff or ordered his staff to help MPs who were helpful to him in getting clients get um, re-elected. I was working during the election for them for free. And, and worse than that, Sir Gordon Downey then investigated this thoroughly. He was the parliamentary commissioner. And he discovered that um, the late Sir Michael Grills had actually been on a retainer of 10 grand a year for Greer for years, was getting bonuses and uh, also share of the profits every time Greer got account. So it was a really serious um, corruption situation where MPs were basically uh, basically getting on a gravy train to um, be paid through lobbyists um, to, for things they shouldn't be. And I suppose that, uh, a bit like how, how it's panned out again uh, in the past couple of weeks, David, at the heart of it, there were some really serious, proper bad things going on. Uh, but then everything then around that is sort of it's a sort of snowball effect of, you know, at the heart of it, really serious wrongdoing by MPs. And then it sort of picks up every other bit of, you know, whether it's MPs having affairs or, you know, sleaze just becomes this all encompassing thing, which creates just create the illusion, that, that, that the, the impression that the, the major government was just mired in muck. 
Yes, it did, actually. It actually triggered a whole lot of, uh, um, of other issues and people started investigating MPs for all sorts of things. But, but the thing that uh, was good, as far as I was concerned, and you had the clip from Sir John Major, and this is the difference between him and Boris Johnson, his initial reaction, and he was himself embarrassed by this because he'd been the guest of honour at Ingria's 10th anniversary party, not knowing this was going on. Um, and he basically then created the system we have today. And the difference is that Boris Johnson's initial reaction was actually to lower the standards, to reduce, actually, the scrutiny uh, that MPs could face, which, as my mind, is one of the big, big points of the, the big points of the differences. OK, so that was the picture in the 90s. Heather Book, uh, what first made you set about trying to get hold of the MPs' expenses? And when you started, when you fired off that first feed of information request, presumably at that point you couldn't have known what you were, you were going to ultimately unleash. Yeah, that's right. Um, I did it as part of a, a book I'd, I'd written um, called your right to know, and it was it was timed to to coincide with the introduction of the Freedom of Information Act in two thousand and five, and it was um, I basically just started to go through my own manuscript, making um, FOIs to different parts of of the British state, and because I'd worked as a political reporter in America, one of the things I could get hold of was my local politicians' expense claims. And so that was something I thought would be a very easy sort of story where I could just duplicate that um, work I'd done previous, previously. Easy peasy. And easy peasy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then I, I discovered they weren't, they weren't public and, and they had no intention of, of making them public. And so it became... Um, a very, a very long sort of concerted battle between between us, myself and and at the time Speaker Michael Martin, who was representing the House of, the, of Parliamentary Authorities. Um, but it wasn't just for expenses; it was also about um, it was all the sort of things that we're talking about now in terms of parliamentary standards. So it was about staff um, who 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 could MPs hire a staff? How much were they paid? What work did they do? It was about travel expenses. It was about lobbying. It was all this sort of thing. And at the time, it was all incredibly opaque. Um, it was just sort of like bulk figures. There was no way the public could really get any kind of detail to accurately interrogate how the money was, you know, public money was being spent. And that was what I was campaigning for, was this detailed financial information um, that the public, who I thought would be best placed to know if their MP was, you know, doing the work they were claiming to do, then if they had if they had the accurate figures the detailed figures they could they could make a better you know decision about was this mp um somebody that they felt that you know they wanted to vote for and of course so you were it was in the process of you trying to get hold of the uh, records through the sort of freedom of information uh, process that of course they were they sort of scanned all of the the receipts but then they were going to go through this great process of redacting them when a whistleblower right. <laughs> uh, gets hold of the unredacted things and, and eventually takes it to uh, the Daily Telegraph, which is where you were, Chris Hope. That's right. Yes, it, yes, it was all down to Heather's, Heather's work on the FOI front that led, led it to fall into our hands um, at the Telegraph. And then we had, I suppose, the capacity and the team and the resource to present it in a kind of understandable way because there were around um, 
two million photographed um, documents <clears throat> that you have to go through. You couldn't just search Duck House or Moat and it would cough up all, this, all, all these great stories. You had to go through each individual one. I remember vividly when, um, when um, we, fought, we found um, uh, Peter Viggers's, uh, the late Peter Viggers's claim for a, um, a duck house, um, and it was turned down by the fees office at the time, but um, it was the early days of Google Earth, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Matt, um, and we, um, we, we, we got his address and we, 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 we zoomed in on his big house somewhere near Ox- in Oxfordshire somewhere. Um, and we saw an island in, in his lake and on the island was a small duck house. And I said, you can see it from space, which is uh, <laughs> one, of the, one of the moments of the of the of the of the story. But yeah, but I think um, if you fast forward to now, the great work that I mean, the lesson from David's uh, story there is don't ever sue a newspaper because the disclosure of documents is what gets you in the end. The lesson of Heather Brooks' brilliant work is FOI is lethal, and no wonder Tony Blair regretted it. The, 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 the today's stories, I would argue, it, it's all out there. I mean, it's all declared. We know what Jeffrey um, Jeffrey Cox claims. Forgive me, uh, as, a, as a barrister, it's all known. And even the story in the, in the Times today, which is a good one, um, that's the, 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 these MPs they can't um, they can't claim mortgage allowance anymore because of, of the scandal that we did. Therefore, they've basically moved into another property in the capital, claiming on that, and they let out their own property for money. So, you know, essentially, the rules are the rules at the moment. I think what the complaints are about at the moment are about the rules and are they a bit, you know, not tough enough on these MPs? Um, it was interesting. So um, uh, Patrick Maguire in the Red Box email this morning had, uh, I think it's a text exchange amongst Tory MPs. Nadine Doris is the culture secretary. Uh, talking about um, how d- of those of us who were there in 2009 know what it was really like. The expenses scandal uh, was a billion times worse than last week. The Duck House was a conservative. Every single MP was in the media. Half a dozen MPs were banged into prison. Um, do you think that's fair? Uh, because um, the, the Twitter poll that I've been running uh, has um, uh, got 56% of people think that, that the current sleaze is the worst. 33% say the MP's expenses. Only 11% going for yours, David. Um, back in the cash away question. Um, I wonder if that's basically just recency bias, do you think, David? That, um, uh, that, or, or maybe there, there's, there's something in it. One person I thought made a very good point. That actually, the point is that each successive one is always worse because they haven't learnt the lessons of the previous ones. What do you think of that, David? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And also, actually, um, Cash for Questions is a bit dim distance in the past now. But um, I think I think it is, it is worse, actually. Um, and um, and, and the, the reason, actually, also is the sums of money. I mean, um, Cash for Questions, and compared with some of the sums people are claiming now, is... <clears throat> sort of chicken feed. I mean, this was talking about people getting five grand, and even in... 19 um so so the scale of it is is much higher i i remember i once talked to um the germans about this they had a session on it and they actually thought cash for questions was quite small they said they had very little fraud in germany when they had it was really efficiently done and was for huge sums of money <laughs> to be moving that way now actually in britain yeah. 
Uh, um, Heather, just um, just on that, and actually, I suppose part of it is the, the 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 thing. No matter how hard the opposition of the day might, you know, the Labour Party in the nineties try to stick it to the Tories, uh, the Tory Party actually, David Cameron, you know, um, try to stick it to the Labour government in the um, over the expenses scandal, and now they've got the opposition trying to sort of stick it to the uh, to the Tories in government again. Part of it is actually it, it sort of tarnishes everyone, really, doesn't it? And actually. No one is really on the higher, on the moral high ground here, are they? No, I don't think so. And one of the things Chris said about like lessons learned, I, I sort of the, the, one of the reasons that expenses became such a explosive scandal was that they um, they sort of people in Parliament continued to grip this idea that they could keep everything under their control and control the story and. And so when the um, when the disc was you know le- was leaked, instead of just making it public, which 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 all that data was meant to be public in the first place, like that's what the whole court case was about, they refused to make it public, and so they basically handed the Telegraph like a month long, ex- I think maybe a month and a half. Chris will know, uh, exclusive on all that information, which which had then created like an even bigger story that tainted everyone. I remember, I, sort of, well. I, I remember that well. Yeah, I remember that well. The paper I, I worked for. Everyone just waited. You just you sat around doing nothing all day, just waiting for the telegraph. Yeah. <laughs> and I did think there was a little element of that with the Owen Patterson story that you know this sort of arrogant idea that you know they could control um, the way that that panned out instead of just accepting sort of responsibility and accountability, they were trying to sort of forced their will and then it all horribly backfired and and just sort of created this you know this sort of slime across the whole institution and, and that's I think the thing. That's yeah the, yeah everyone, everyone that's gets covered I would really in it. like them to to learn you know when once you've once you've when something bad has happened like just own it and take responsibility and then you know learn from it and move on don't try to cover it up because that that just creates more disaster um, just finally, then, in a, in, a, in a word or two, I want to ask you all, which, which do you think was the worst of it all? Um, uh, David, <laughs> David Hankey, first of all. What, the present the, scandal? The 90s, the noughties or now? <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, the, 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 regardless of thing, I mean, I mean, the worst thing, I think, was at the moment was, was the Prime Minister's initial reaction, which was to find some way of, um, of actually making it less accountable, which, as you rightly say, is much more difficult. It was actually in the 1990s, and uh, there was no internet at all, so it was quite <laughs> difficult to get information on this, whereas now it's all out in the open. Heather, the the nineties, noughties, or now? Hmm. I think the money that uh, what David said, the money sums that we're talking about now, and the, the 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 closeness between big business and government in Britain is is kind of starting to replicate a lot of the you know the, the, the corruption that is, you've seen in America. So I I think that. Um, while all of them have a similar route, which is powerful people trying to avoid accountability, I think that now, because of the yeah the times we're in and the amounts of money, I think now is probably probably the mo- the most worrying. Uh, just finally, then in a, in a word or two, Chris, which was the worst? Yeah. The nineties, the noughties, or now? Well, I would say that I, was, I would say definitely the noughties because uh, MPs went to prison on the back of that story, and that hasn't happened yet. I think no one knew how bad it was. And then and what was amazing, of course, was, was um, the Parliament 
then publish all of the re redacted uh, date um, pages of all these expenses after we had dealt with the unredacted ones. I mean, they, they were trying to hide it all, but it, it, yeah, the horse has bolted. It's absurd, classically <laughs> absurd Parliament moment. Definitely the noughties. Um, I stand by that one. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs>